Hello and welcome to What Editors Want. I'm Philip Connor and this is the podcast where I interview commissioning editors to find out what they look for in a manuscript. This week's guest is Jenny Lord, publisher at Weidefeldt and Nicholson, part of Orion, who were recently crowned Publisher of the Year. This episode was originally recorded some time ago, but because of the sad passing of Deborah Orr, one of the authors we discussed today, Jenny and I took the decision to postpone its release. As well as Deborah's fantastic memoir, Motherwell, we'll be talking about how sometimes great books make their own market. In particular, we'll be talking about Amy Liptrot's The Outrun, Olivia Lang's The Lonely City, and Out of the Woods by Luke Turner. There'll even be a mention of the philosophy of Snoopy. And stay tuned until the end, as there'll be some exciting news of where you can see what editors want live. Hello, Jenny. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Um, so, Jenny, will you tell us a little bit about um, your role there? Um, because it's interesting... Uh, as a publisher, that's a word that I guess people don't hear all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess they, when I think of publisher, I think of the company, but I'm actually just the person. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm the publisher of Weidenfeld & Nicholson, which basically means that I lead the team of commissioning editors at the imprint. So there are six of us who are actively commissioning across fiction and non-fiction, um, and I work with them to kind of set a strategy for the list which essentially means that we think about what kind of books we want to publish, um, what we want to define the list, how we're going to find those books, who we want to bring to the list, etc, etc. Um, and I also uh, help them make decisions about what kind of books they want to acquire right. themselves. Um, and then I have a list of my own titles that I commission, which is just non-fiction which is my background in publishing okay great and um, can you tell us a little bit about wnn um, and what people might know them for um so wnn was a company that was set up by george reidenfeld and nigel nicholson um and nigel was the son of abita cycle west and harold nicholson um and george and nigel set up a company in 1948 uh with their first book being published in 1949 um, they quickly became known for the uh, sort of very high quality, the high literary quality of the list. Um, and interestingly, that caused a lot of their rival publishers to predict the demise of the company because they assumed that what they were publishing was just sort of too high brow. Wow. <laughs> which, which I think is kind of cool. Um, so 70, 70 years on, we're still going. Um, but things kind of really took off for uh, the company in the late 50s when the list was dramatically expanding um, and they commissioned a sort of number of international series um, and they also had the landmark publication of Lolita which at the time was a big deal and very courageous mm. there were no other publisher in town essentially wanted to take on the book um, but it was the right thing to do and it became a massive bestseller um, so was that already causing scandal elsewhere in the yeah, world? absolutely. And there was a court case rumbling. And yeah, it was a sort of ridiculous thing to do, but it was a thing to do. Um, and 
And they were really, Vinetal and Nicholson as a, as a list and the people who worked there were, were known for kind of being um, agenda setting and breaking mm. new ground, um, which is something we try and remind ourselves of uh, now when we're acquiring books is to always think about how can we change the conversation or move things on a bit or, you know, do things that are risky. Um, so, yeah, so alongside Lolita, there were, there was quite a few names that people hopefully would recognise, like Saul Bellow and Mary McCarthy, Isaiah Berlin, Cecil Beaton, Eric Hobsbawm. Um, so kind of an amazing... Incredible list, list yes. Yeah. And then Weinfeld and Nicholson was acquired um, as a company by Orion in the early 90s and now is an imprint within Orion. Right. And publishing both nonfiction and fiction. Fiction and nonfiction, yeah. Um, about 60 bo- new books a year. Right. Um, which is quite big, actually, for a literary yeah, very much so. Imprint, um, but I think it's because we publish into quite a sort of we're quite a broad church in lots of ways, and that we have history, science, memoir, biography, literary fiction, translated fiction, mm. crime, thrillers. Um, but we're defined by the fact that we're the sort of you know, uh, I say this with inverted commas, literary imprint within Orion. Um, so we sit within quite a commercial publishing house. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're the guys who do we're things that in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not bad. Yes. <laughs> um, but let's talk about how you got into publishing originally, because mm-hmm. it wasn't a straightforward route, was it? No, um, and I understand a lot of people say this, but it was an accident. <laughs> it was an accident. Um, I studied philosophy at university uh, initially, and then moved to joint honours with English when I decided I hated Kant. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> I left university... Um, uh, and went into teaching autistic kids for a while um, for complicated reasons. Um, and while I was doing that, I, I just became very obsessed with the idea that I wanted to be a psychoanalyst. Um, I think because I'd sort of studied theory at university and I found it just completely fascinating, mm-hmm. and I, I still do. Um, so that, for me, was, I was absolutely sure that that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I got myself a place on a course at the Tavistock um, and then had to defer my entry because in order to start training, you have to have been in therapy for three times a week right. for a year. Before you oh, right. So that's a requirement to start your course, right? Yeah, to sort of take your own crazy out before you start, <laughs> <laughs> which turns out not to be possible. Um, anyway, so I started doing that and um, I was temping at the time trying to sort of earn money to, to fund that endeavour um, and accidentally got a temporary job in the international sales department of Simon Schuster mm. um, and just couldn't believe it i just couldn't believe that a building like that would exist and that that would be a job and then i just didn't ever want to go back down that other yeah. route it was a really an overnight thing of the kind of wow why didn't no one tell me that publishing was a job yeah but you hadn't uh well you were a reader anyway that was that yeah. it, it wasn't that you weren't a reader it was just that you know i mean i found that the same we grew yeah. up in a house filled with books yeah. but i never gave a second thought to where they came from or who was involved with yeah, making them I had never encountered or been in any kind of conversation where anyone said you can edit, read, work with, mm. make books. For yeah, anything. design covers for no, anything. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it just didn't exist. I mean, like yeah, like you, my I grew up in sort of a really book hungry household, but it yeah i didn't i didn't come through yeah and i did a i did a creative writing degree partially and uh even in that environment it was 
not spoken about really? yeah it was really it was kind of almost tacked on at the end and i don't mean that as a criticism because they were trying yeah. to give you space to to write and whatever but it was almost like the dirty the dirty yeah. side of things like you know that's you can't write yeah. <laughs> not quite more that um you know this is how you have to make money once you've finished your pure oh, yeah. literary endeavor oh um yeah. but yeah stumbling very gratefully finding out was, but, but even now i mean i certainly if i go home to to ireland for christmas and things you know people do not know what i mean when i say i work in publishing yeah. um yeah. so i've come up with like different code words <laughs> yeah yeah. I mean, yeah and so what so you started at simon and schuster in international sales did you always have your eye on doing something in an editorial uh, yeah well so that job was two weeks i mean it was really a kind of going to a temporary agency and at the time i was temping in hospitals as a medical secretary and i was sick of it and it just was like just get me something anything mm-hmm. anything but secretarial work um, so from there, I, well, I, I, I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't have any money, I couldn't afford to do work experience, but I also knew just even spending two weeks in a publisher at that point in particular that if you wanted to get into publishing, you had to do loads of loads of work, you had to work for free for ages, which is so wrong and thankfully is changing um, rapidly. Um, but because I couldn't afford to do the work experience and I, I sort of knew very quickly that I wanted to be an editorial, I just decided that I should get a foot in the door. Um, so I took a job in the production and design department of Hodder and Stoughton. Right. Um, and I worked there for a year and a half. And um, from there, and, and while I was there, it just, it, yeah, it kind of, my idea that I wanted to be an editorial just became, you know, mm. sure and sure for that. So I read submissions for editors who were working at Hodder at the time. I was sure I was totally unhelpful, but it was great. It was useful for me. And then from there, I moved to Penguin. Right. So even, I'm guessing that didn't fall into your production job description. You were just... and what do you think about for people trying to get into publishing, for instance? Do you, I mean, uh, something I've said before on this podcast is I often think that um, it can be a detriment if you haven't got a foot in the door anywhere to be overly concerned with just applying for editorial system positions and often yeah um it was the best thing i did i just having that training in production just it allowed me to do different things very quickly as a, as a young editor mm-hmm. um you know i'm sure we'll come on to this but it meant that i was able to put together books in a way that other editors of you know on my level weren't um, because I was used to sort of thinking, really thinking about the nuts and bolts of how things are put together and what you need in order to make physically make. Sure, and I'm sure the cost implications yeah, and exactly. what, yeah. Um, it was also brilliant. <laughs> you know, I, I loved working in production and I kind of, it was, I was quite torn when, it, when I finally got the job that I wanted at Penguin as an editorial assistant. I was really, really sad to leave the department and um, yeah, I still sometimes think whether life would have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had this. I also was, you know, very single-mindedly wanted to work in editorial, but I think partly because that was my idea of what publishing was, and everything else kind of was on the periphery. Mm-hmm. And I think also p- production was just a bit intimidating. You know, I had no idea what went into these books and it also comes with its own vocabulary yeah. and all these types of things. But now, having been in publishing for five or six years. Um, if I couldn't do this job anymore, that's what I'd want to yeah, do. 
<laughs> Good. <laughs> so you got a job at Penguin. Yeah. Was it Penguin General or a specific imprint? Or? It was Penguin General working with Juliet Annan. Um, I was her assistant and she was and still is brilliantly running an imprint called Fig Tree. Um, so I arrived at Fig Tree six months after the imprint had been set up. Right. So it was just a great time to be there. And she is a total maverick. Um, my publishing idol always will be, and I learned so much from Juliet. Um, and uh, her list was, was pretty broad. It was actually mostly fiction, um, but she had some just some killer authors on her list, like Anita Bruckner and wow. Bradley and Helen Dunmore and Margaret Drabble, and you know, just sort of being in some vague proximity to those yeah. and so despite being uh, an employee of Penguin or did working at like a small imprint like that that was just starting out did that mean that you were doing everything to a degree well yeah and lots of I mean not in the way that you would if you're working for an independent but yeah it was just it was just two of us and actually that's where the production my production background became really really helpful because a few years after I joined Penguin Juliet and I we were both really into food and food writing, incredibly greedy, and we um, set up a little food list and we wanted to start publishing cookbooks, which historically at Penguin had always been done by Michael Joseph, the imprint there, publishing Oliver. And, um, but we were just talking a lot about how you know, there's a kind of uh, cookery publishing that could be done that isn't those sort of big TV chefs and that isn't celebrity it cookery. Celebrity-driven, exactly. It was more kind of restaurant-led or food writing, you know, led by the writing or mm. the recipes or whatever. Um, and because I had come from that production background and knew how to sort of get colour books together, um, that just became a possibility, which was really exciting. Because mm. uh, on an earlier episode, I uh, spoke with Susanna Otter at Quadril, right. who makes loads of yeah. colour books, and I was, it was really interesting. It was the episode maybe I learnt the most because she does yeah. something so different from what I've done. You know, that we've done a few cookbooks during my time at Unbound but there are significant difficulties if you don't okay. know how to do those if you're not set up to do them to do photography to do the design yeah. all those kinds of things um so did you spend quite a long time at Fig Tree or how I was there for five years um and it was one of those jobs where I left as a commissioning editor um but I was still assisting right so you'd risen up the ranks in yeah. in titles but it was still a it's, small place it's very common um and I was commissioning by the time I left, so I commissioned my first three books while it was at Penguin, and like I said, we, Julia and I were working on the cookery list together, sure. um, and I was just, it, I was ready. Um, I had, it sounds pathetic, but I had always wanted to work for Gate, which is where I went next, um, and particularly at that time, uh, on the non-fiction side, they were doing such exciting things, they just published David Simon, mm. um, his book Homicide, uh, which is just a masterpiece, and uh, Barack Obama, um, which had been no small since. And doing some really interesting stuff on the sort of illustrated nonfiction side with the Mighty Boosh book and just loads of great stuff. Mm. And it, I just set my sights on Camgate and um, yeah, I was lucky enough that the position came up there. So that's where I went and had started in my first sort of full time commissioning role without having to assistant. Right. And were you still doing nonfiction there or were you doing a bit of everything? Just nonfiction. Um, so yeah, I went to Canongate with the remit of sort of setting up my own nonfiction list. And did you find, I mean, I'm just interested in that because you've obviously been at there relatively at the outset of Fig Tree and yeah. then that idea of setting up your list and like, is mm-hmm. that must be daunting in terms of you have to define what that's going to be and what yeah. your taste is 
Um, it changes all the time. Like every job that I've had, I've commissioned different kinds of books. Right. Um, and maybe this is sort of narrowing slightly, but the great thing about Pangate uh, was that there was only one other non-fiction editor there, um, brilliant guy called Nick Davies, who's now the uh, MD of John Murray. Um, and he was doing a particular kind of non-fiction, but wasn't touching the kind of non-fiction that I really wanted to do. So I had totally clear portion. It was just about how do I do what I want to do, and it fit in the kind of ethos of a company like Pangate, which is very, is just, it's a company with a lot of personality. Yeah, because I guess that is the thing about commissioning or what you just said there of commissioning different books depending on your work. Like a, a degree of it is, of course, your personal taste. But another yeah. degree of it is making sure that those books fit within the remit and personality of that publisher. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's something that you don't really think about when you're making jobs. Really. <laughs> um, but yeah, you do sort of adapt and change and because yeah, I guess even down to the decision making even if it is your list it's going to be a collaborative Absolutely. acquisition and you know it's going to be things that are easier to get people in Canada get excited yeah. about that it's more appropriate for them that aren't maybe some of the cookbooks thing you've yeah. done in the past or whatever yeah exactly and so a lot actually um, Canada editorial meetings were pretty hilarious <laughs> and I miss them enormously but a lot you know there was a sort of a great way to kind of get get excitement there was to do something different and be disruptive and you know um which actually you don't get in a lot of more corporate yeah yeah um, yeah and ha- uh, when and did you move from Canagate straight to WNN yeah I did so I was at Canagate for five years um and moved to WNN yeah just over two oh no oh god it's almost three years <laughs> yeah Cool. And did you think you were, were your, was your plan to bring similar types of books or is the, did that thing come into play, which we've just spoken about, of having to change yeah. slightly to fit the well, space? Well, so when, when I was thinking of moving on from Canning 8, um, I had a lot of thinking to do, really, because because my list of Canning 8 was very broad. I was publishing cookery and, um, you know, some serious literary non-fiction and snoopy um, <laughs> yeah we've got some here actually yeah, i mean that's quite a one for the cv yeah, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. philosophy of snoopy i'm just very proud of that though yeah, as you like, should I be when it was just publishing it was like number, number one and i was in it like an introduction to philosophy and it's like my work here is done <laughs> my work is done um so yeah my list was so broad and then i was also publishing quite a lot of what we call like commercial non-fiction so tv tie-in stuff um, and it was at that point I was like, okay, well, what, which bit of this do I want to take forward? Because it's quite, it's quite a unique position to be in, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere like Canada, which is very small, and you can publish into lots of different categories. But if I was, I knew that I sort of wanted to go back into a much bigger uh, publishing context. Uh, I'd have to narrow things down because there'd already be editors who were sort of specialising in cookery. They didn't, they didn't need me to do cookery or whatever. Um, and so I just. I, I thought very carefully about which were the books that really made my heart sing, mm. and it was the more sort of literary end of the spectrum. Um, so yeah, that's why. So it, WNN became a, became a good a fit. Job. Yeah, yeah. A right fit for me. So that brings us nicely onto some of the books you've done while you're there. Um, and the first one we're going to talk about is The Outrun, which came out last year, I guess, in 2019. Outrun. Oh no, this is still. Oh god, let's check the imprint page because I just I remember it. Com- well, oh, oh, you're much obviously much closer to it than I. Um, how yeah. did this, how did this book come to you? Was this one of the first things you'd done there? Um, it wasn't one of the. I I'd, I'd commissioned to publish quite a few things at Canagate, but 
Um, this is a book that is just enormously close to my heart and will be, I think, for a very long time. Um, so it came to me, it was submitted to me by an agent, um, and there was a, a really small auction for the book, so a few of us publishers really wanted to work with Amy Littrop, the author, um, including Juliet Mel Bossett Penguin, and who was extremely cross. <laughs> I won the auction, which is always like, yeah, something that I was always terrified of and this was the first time it happened. Yeah, it's been funny sometimes going around and doing these interviews that, the, you know, everyone's question is, who else have you met? And they're like, oh, we always bid on the same yeah, books. Yeah, the what did they say? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, and then it was a, this was quite, it was kind of an unusual submission because uh, so it's a memoir, it's nonfiction, and normally when you are looking at nonfiction to acquire, you are looking at proposals. It's you know a short amount, of, small amount of material about what the book might be. Mm. Um, this was unusual because Amy had written the whole thing, um, and I actually don't think I have acquired since a book that has been fully written. So I guess the proposal thing obviously protects people from writing a whole book without, yeah. to, instead of uh, to be sure someone wants yeah. it. And what would, just because I'm sure there's lots of aspiring authors, for instance, mm. listening to that, what in your mind makes a good proposal? Is it kind of synopsis, three chapters? What? Oh God, it dep- I mean, the book that we'll come on to talk about later is Olivia Lang's The Lonely City, which we acquired on a single paragraph. I mean, that you, not many people can get away with that. I mean, it's sort of how long is a piece of string kind of question. I ju- it just needs to give a sort of true sense of what the book is going to be and whether that is just an introduction and then a chapter outline, then that can be enough. Um, sometimes you need to really see how the chapters are going to be come together so then a sample chapter is really Mm. important but for me it's just does the author believe in this book and are they the one to write it those are the two questions that i ask yeah i always find that when i've been i've been sent things from the again from a paragraph that we didn't end up taking (laughs) all the way to the but there's there's some sort of threshold that uh, the author or the book passes when it seems to have found out what it is and that's the kind of moment where i feel you can make a judgment on it Yes or no? Although, you know, quite a few of the books that I've acquired and edited don't know what they are. Right. Um, And I get really, really excited when I can see a different book in a proposal, which may be a sort of strange thing to hear. But, um, yeah, there's been quite a few books that I've gone on to publish that were submitted to me as something completely different. Mm. So I guess, you know, as opposed to, I mean, speaking to lots of fiction editors, you know, nearly always those books are finished before they're going to find a home. So, I mean, I guess this lets you get in on the ground floor a little bit and shape it. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a real opportunity, I think. And I, I would encourage people to, you know, writers out there who are thinking about, you know, how to get, you know, how to explore what they want to say that nonfiction is, can be so, you know, much better, which is such a particular art and so much about taste and about flavor of the month and, you know, mm. um, but yeah. And so this book came to you fully formed yeah. or, or fully finished at least? It was finished, yes. Uh, well, the first draft was finished and um, so Amy and I worked quite closely together on the edit. It was quite, 
we did quite a lot actually uh, and it was interesting working with that kind of it was I suppose it was more like editing a novel and that it's all there and you have to sort of look at the, the you know parts and check they're all in the right place um, so uh, for those people who don't know what the outrun is it's a memoir about Amy's um, experience of uh, moving back to Orkney where she grew up um, after she has been uh, uh, recovering for uh, problems with alcohol um, and it's back to Orkney where she goes around the age of 30 to recover and to sort of collect herself again um, and it's a book that is about that recovery um, but it's also it is a book about Orkney and it's a book about being in the natural world um, and it's sort of nature writing like nothing else I had ever read I'd like loved nature writing and I've published quite a few nature writers in the past and this had this for me was a book that kind of sort of turned the genre on its head a bit. Uh, it was sort of electrifying and she embraced technology in a way that we weren't really allowed to do previously. <laughs> writing. Um, it was kind of wild and just like full of movement and energy and uh, just incredibly visceral. Um, but the book, when, when I acquired the book, it was kind of in two halves really it was so the book has two two very strong settings one is london fields and one is orkney um, and it's sort of london fields where amy is unraveling and orkney where she's sort of rebuilding um and the book when it first came in was was kind of split down the middle and had this there was a lot of the kind of london narrative at the beginning of the book um, and then it really kicked off the Orkney narrative about halfway through, um, if I'm remembering correctly. So what we did was that we worked together to basically chop up London <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and sort of thread those episodes into the book so that Orkney becomes the main thrust and the main location and the main sort of place in which she explores, you know, the things that she wants to explore. Um, and we chopped up bits, you know, even scenes of this incredibly powerful scenes that take place in London that we chopped then chopped up into further bits and then threaded those so that you get a sort of sense of this sort of building. Mm. And was, because that's obviously quite a big decision, yeah. um, you know, when you mentioned that the book went to auction, for instance, was mm -hmm. that something that was part of that? You know, were you not just not just an auction for money, but also saying yeah. this is what we would do to it if you published with yeah. us? I remember having a conversation with Amy. I think she was in Orkney at the time. I remember having outside. I remember hearing a lot of wind and her smoking, which was very much... Thing that she did, <laughs> um, and us having this conversation about the book and about you know how she felt about. I I, I, I I'm sure she barely remembers that conversation because it just must be so weird to sort of put your book out there and have lots of editors say I really want this and I want to work with you and how do you feel about X Y and Z and having all of those conversations. But um, yeah, she seemed into the idea um there was something really you know i was working for Canada at the time she's a scottish company she was you know scottish herself and there was something really lovely about that connection mm. too that made, made sense Great. Um, and that just speaking about another canon gay here, which you mentioned briefly, mm. which is Olivia Lang. Mm. Um, that is another book that is, I guess, on the face of it, a literary memoir, yeah. but it's also a book about New York and yeah. art and the AIDS crisis yeah. and a million other things. Yeah. What? How did that book come to you? Because Olivia had written other books for Canongate previous. Yeah, actually, so she had already written, so this was the book I was mentioning that was acquired just on a paragraph. Uh, she's an extraordinary writer and I'd probably read anything 
wish you both. Me too. Um, I definitely would. Um, yeah. <laughs> just on the back of the bag packet. Um, yeah, so we'd published two books previously with Olivia. The first, her debut was a book called To the River, which was about uh, traveling source to sea, the river ooze, and about Virginia Woolf and about suicide. Um, and her beautiful book. Uh, a second book was called The Trip to Echo Spring, and it was about writers and alcoholism. Um, again, just a kind of staggering book. Um, and then, yeah, The Lonely City um, was, so her, yeah, the third book that we were publishing at, at Camingate. And by that point, you know, when you sort of, company has published an author successfully already, it just kind of, there's a different kind of, there's a sort of short cut to conversations about what next books mm-hmm. might be and a trust there that's sort of um, kind of magical so you can just acquire a book on the yeah. um, and she wanted to write a book about loneliness and explore that um, and so I mean, it's, it's, a, it's much less of a memoir than Amy's book in that Olivia's story is present but it's 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 it's, it's a tiny slice um, and really the book is about art and a book um, so she it's uh, she uses Arthur work for mainly for artists to explore a very particular kind of loneliness which is the kind of loneliness you feel in a highly populated city so when you sort of technically should be shouldn't feel isolated and you're surrounded by people there's a particular kind of loneliness that can set in in that urban isolation um, it's not about proximity it's, it's about, about pro- no or solitude or it's about a different kind of so I suppose it's, yeah, a different kind of feeling uh, of isolation that has nothing to do with being surrounded by people or being into, you know, sort of intimately connected with the city. Um, and she uses the work of four artists as a way of exploring that. So Andy Warhol, um, Edward Hopper, and then who will be known to everyone, um, and then two artists who, who probably won't, David Boynerovitz, who was an artist who was very active in the 70s and 80s, um, and died tragically young um, of AIDS in the early 90s, I think, and then an artist called Henry Darger, who was a Chicago janitor who had suffered uh, a terrible mental illness and who who would now call, controversially or not, um, an outsider artist. Um, and yeah, and there's a sort of element to it which is about her own story of being in New York, New York at a very particular time of her life and experiencing this kind of loneliness. Um, yeah. It was interesting what you said um, between talking about those two books about um, for anyone thinking about writing fiction, consider mm-hmm. nonfiction, because some of the ideas in both of these books are things that you might traditionally expect yeah. someone to explore through fiction and they, I don't know if uh, it's not quite, to call it a new genre is completely wrong but it seems to gain prominence or certainly there seems to be more books in that area yeah. very delightfully yeah. of things that are I don't know maybe ostensibly about one thing but absolutely about another as well yeah absolutely I mean it's, yeah funny that you should say that because there were parts in the outrun that had originally been written by any as fiction right um, uh, then she sort of but they were very, very much fictionalised versions of conversations that existed. So she could sort of bend those depending on to suit, you know, which avenue she was going down. But yeah, it's this sort of genre, sort of uh, books that refuse to be pinned down or categorised, mm. sort of defy and deny categorization and non-fiction. I particularly as an editor, I'm just very, very interested in that because it, it gives you freedom to 
really range in a really exciting way around lots of different subjects and um, in a way that is sort of this is a biography of this subject just doesn't allow you to do yeah absolutely like I would probably have never read a biography of any of those four artists right. yeah. but I'd also probably not have read a book about someone going to New York for a bit either yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so <laughs> those two things together yeah. are much something else entirely yeah, yeah. Um, I think the person then like whenever you talk about books like this it's inevitably someone ends up talking about like WGC Bald and those kinds of yeah, exactly. books that I don't know if he pioneered them quite but something that he yeah. maybe brought to prominence yeah maybe I mean it's the sort of thing that comes in and out of fashion I suppose as well I mean there was a time when I remember the conversations that we had at Cangate around the Outrun and a particular conversation that we had about the subtitle, uh, there is no subtitle on the book, which is something that I fought quite hard for because I felt like, how the hell do you describe this book in a subtitle? And actually, we also had a bit of an argument about the word for outrun and whether that would be off-putting to people. But, you know, we, what we really hoped was that the outrun would sort of become a word because of this book. And, and happily, that has kind of, you know, it's very associated. Yeah, it's that danger of... Naming something in yeah. order to make it a thing, rather. Yeah, than. it's pretty risky, but I'm I'm glad we did it. But yeah, so no subtitle because it's very difficult to categorize. But at the time we had these conversations about how no one read, reads memoirs. We can't call it a memoir. We have to just we have to say it's nature writing, or we have mm-hmm. to. You know. And these are the conversations that you have a lot. And there, you know, then there was a time around that time where people were reading memoir again. Yeah, was, was it the kind of H's for Hawk time? Exactly. Yeah. So that one came out. Uh, maybe six months after Hitches for Hawk and, and so that that builds a kind of interesting context for a book like The Outrun to sit within um, and you know and then it's becoming harder again to publish memoir but mm. it's, it's like anything in publishing it I think in the time that I've been publishing literary fiction has died and come back memoir has has been dead and risen and then gone away again and you know it's it, and the paperback has died and been resurrected. Like it's kind of everything that in the cycle. Sure. And do you think? I mean, I always find that sometimes um, we're told these things rather yeah. than them. You know, you always hear things about what booksellers want. You know, they hate books that are green, or they yeah, hate yeah, books yeah. that are this size. Or, <laughs> and do you? Th- but do you think that is is everyone so overthinking it, or is it's there is some shit? Ch- right. <laughs> <laughs> I just think if you try and sort of, I think I. So I've been publishing since 2000, so yeah, four, 14 years now. And so long enough to sort of see, just long enough probably to see things come and go and, and be fully aware that there's a there's a cycle and that you ca- you cannot as an editor let yourself be defined or I, I certainly never want my acquisition taste to be moving with the time so much that you miss a trickle, you miss an opportunity to say, look, maybe there is no market for this yet but I'm really interested in this and I think there's something exciting yeah because great books make their own market right, sometimes exactly. and actually some of the books that I have acquired there was a battle to acquire them I remember so I published a brilliant brilliant woman called Caitlin Doughty who's uh, an American mortician um, and I published her first book which is called Smoke Gets In Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematorium um, which is a very funny, funny memoir about her um, experience working in the funeral business in in the US and the acquisition meeting for that was like no one reads books about death. Is, you know, you can you've caught you can do it if you want, but 
just have a go, you know, see, you know, they were, I was lucky enough that they sort of allowed me to do yeah. it. But, you know, six months later, Being Mortal by um, Atul Gawande came out and suddenly everyone was reading books about death. And, and that's not me having any great insight into the future. I'm not, I can't see into the future, but I think if the book is good enough, the author is authentic. I think, you know, there, there's always a reason to just have a go. In mm. And I think that book specifically, or Caitlin's work also was um, hit that niche of mm. talking about like being mortal was such a serious mm. uh, understandably work whereas Caitlin had a degree of humour and a degree of exactly yeah it was irreverent and in a way that was um, really unexpected from a funeral director <laughs> yeah <laughs> Great. Um, and this, you know, talk the two books we've kind of spoken about before, The Outrun and The Lonely City. I mean, the next book we're going to talk about is Out of the Woods by Luke Turner. Yeah. And again, I mean, these are three wildly different books, but do have, you would you know, something in common as well. For sure. Um, actually, Luke, Luke, so Luke's book we, did, we published uh, in hardback in January this year. Um, and that it was a book that I actually met him when I was working at Cangate, although I ended up acquiring his book and publishing it at the Weidenfeld. I met him at Cangate uh, because his agent had submitted a very, very different book to me, which was that he wanted to write a book about Epping Forest, essentially. It was a sort of social history of the kind of weirdos and wonders and uh, sort of, yeah, social history of that very particular place. Um, and I met Luke, uh, and I felt very sure that that wasn't the book that he should write. Um, partly because uh, another writer called Will Ashon had just, I just think it just been announced that he was writing a very similar kind of book. Um, and partly because I felt like like Luke, when I met him, just kind of blew me away with his personality. He's just an extraordinarily effervescent, interesting guy. Um, and it did feel right to me that he wasn't writing by himself. <laughs> and I also, I'd read a piece, so Luke uh, runs a really brilliant online uh, a website called The Quietus about music, and I'd read a piece that he'd written in 2012 about Frank Ocean, um, and uh, a piece about Frank Ocean uh, and his uh, confession, I suppose, that his first love had been a man, um, and the sort of ridiculous reaction to that in the media. Um, and Luke wrote a really beautiful piece about um, how society just finds it so difficult to comprehend male bisexuality. Um, and so I sort of knew that Luke had this interesting, something interesting to say about that subject, and that there might be a way to marry the two. Um, and we had this meeting in the office where I said, okay, this is, I think you should write a memoir. I think you should write about Evan Forest, but I think we should also tell this story that I know is in you. And he was terrified. <laughs> he, was, he often talks about the fact that after that meeting, he went with his agent to the pub and there was a massive thunderstorm. And he, you know, it was really terrifying. You know, um, said. But he did, he went away and he did it. And it was really difficult, I think, uh, because he had to trudge through a lot of, difficult stuff in his past but what the result is I think an extraordinary book that again kind of totally refuses to be pinned into one category it's a book about bisexuality it's a book about nature it's a book about the darkness of nature it's a sort of anti-nature book it's not about how nature cures you mm. it's about how nature can fuck you up and um 
And it's a book about what it's like to sort of grow up in really sort of strict, uh, with a strict religious code. And Luke's father is a Methodist minister, um, and he struggled with his sort of sexual identity his whole life. Um, that's Luke, not his father. Um, and it's a book about sexual compulsion and sexual abuse, and, and it's full of dark, dark stuff, but it's also really funny. Um, and it has this sort of lightness and is just kind of illuminating in, in lots and lots of ways. Mm, it must have been, ter- you can completely comprehend why it must have been terrifying for him totally, to yeah. to <laughs> offer to write this book yeah. about a subject and to totally. be asked to instead make yourself the subject. Yeah, really, and I think it took him a while and there were moments I know, Luke has become a very, very close friend of mine, I know there were moments when he did not want to do it and he really regretted having embarked on but I know that the book has come out and he's had some really amazing, important conversations. You know, as an editor, I end up sort of being incredibly knowledgeable about a very, very tiny, tiny slice of a subject. And I, and I think that's the appeal. And I, I want readers of the books that I publish to, to feel that too, that they put something down and they know a great deal more about the world in, in a small way. Yeah, I mean, I love reading some of these books and things like it as well, because if you told me it was a book um about boxing mm. say i wouldn't ever pick that up and read it however i'm thinking of a book called um the last thing i uh, this bloody mary is the last thing i own which which isn't a book about boxing at all it's right. a book about a guy who puts some money into a boxer and goes on this but again it certainly right, fits yeah. i guess into these things and i have a little shelf at home of mm. things i things i'm not interested in but love books about if that makes sense exactly it's like they have burying days or you know, that yeah like, who wants to learn about yeah we published an amazing book here called children in las vegas which right. was um the author was teaching a creative writing course in las vegas and uh no one had read this story he'd set one day right. and he asked them why and they said oh someone said oh my mother stole my money and someone else said i don't have any money and it was this incredibly diverse you know some guy's dad had started a casino but then and he grew up believing he was going to be a multimillionaire and then having nothing because he'd wow. thrown it all away and someone else had got kids but they're taken away from it but again it was it was kind of about las vegas and a kind of about greed and a million other things and those are books that are really hard to pin down and you know you don't go to typically go to a bookshelf and find them all on the shelf together no you don't go to a bookshelf to a bookshop and say i want a book about what it's like to live as a as a man and be bisexual or you know or orkney specifically you you come yeah and you're you're surprised and it's unexpected and And so as a publisher thinking about that i mean you you know you have to obviously wonder how do you sell things like this which aren't (laughs) (laughs) but to a degree i guess you've just built up a bit of reputation for them and Fortunately, they're, you know, people are interested and, you know, they've read H's for Hawk or The Outrun or something like that and they want other things like it. It's alchemy. I mean, and there are so many factors. It's, I I do, like Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, Caitlin Doughty, would people have read that if Atagawandi hadn't changed the way that we think and want to read about death? I Mm. don't know. Um, Context can be really important. I mean, it's publishing is kind of a machine, and it's but for it's a sort of strangely elusive. It just has no instruction manual. Um, but once the machine kind of kicks in, it can be incredible. So, mm. take the outrun, for example, was everything just lined up, all the cogs lined up to make that book 
uh, it become very successful. So from you know the first the, the cover, so we briefed the cover, and immediately the designer came up with this, something that actually became I think quite an iconic. Yeah, but yeah, it was very absolutely stunning. Kind of nature writing out there. Um, that was right. You know, I started to send the proofs, early proofs that we had out to other writers, and immediately got all these quotes from other writers saying this book is amazing, and it had some really strong early champions. Um, it had a, a review that ran annoyingly early in the Guardian, I think two two or three weeks before publication, which we were really cross. We were like, that's just too soon, that's really annoying, no one's going to be able to buy the book yet, and blah, blah, blah. But actually, it meant that everyone else wanted to review it. Um, it was book of the week on Radio 4, um, and then, yeah, everything sort of happens. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, that seems so easy, it's but of easy. course, <laughs> yeah, but you can't engineer <laughs> any of those single things. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, I mean, there's things that you, you know, one of the dangers of publishing is you can get everything right or, you know, yeah. as close to right publishing doesn't mean that it's still going to take off in of that course. same way. And as an editor, you have a graveyard of books in your head that deserved for mm-hmm. many, many readers to find them and they didn't. And, you know, it's that's the, the very hard thing about this job is you don't forget those books and um, those authors and those, the extraordinary work um, that went into them. Um, yeah. And the last book we're going to talk about is something that's coming out. Is it next year? Uh, Motherwell. Motherwell, yeah. Um, so January in 2020, we published Motherwell, which is... And I guess this is going back to your heart, to your heartland. Of- <laughs> <laughs> One of my babies. I'm so excited about it. I'm in this stage of this book where I couldn't love it any more than I do right now. Um, there's a, the edit has just finished. So it's a, a memoir, again, um, by Deborah Orr, who is very well known as a newspaper journalist. She was at The Guardian for a very long time. She's written for all kinds of... She was The Guardian's uh, youngest ever weekend magazine editor when she was uh, 30. She's an extraordinary woman, has never written a book before, which is bizarre. Um, So this was another book where it was submitted to me as something entirely different from what the book has become. So uh, I I sort of can't even believe that it's so different. So the book she wanted to write was a book about haircuts um, through the ages. And there was a sort of element of a kind of biography in there, writing about her own hairdresser. But I met Deborah, I was like, do not do this. <laughs> do this. You don't, this isn't the book that you should write. And, and, and the reason I said it, not because it wouldn't have been a great, interesting, fascinating book, or probably a fairly small book, probably quite a niche thing. Um, but there are some, there were bits and pieces in the proposal she'd written, the little snapshots of uh, things that she'd written about her mother in particular. So little biographical elements that just knocked me off my chair even though there weren't very many of them at all but I remember kind of having a proposal and just highlighting those and being like this is a book in here and I met her and we started talking and you know it became very clear that she should she should write a book about her very particular the childhood experience that she had growing up with um, her mother Wynne who was a sort of formidable character who when her entire life was defined by her relationship to men and particularly um, being in the shadow of her husband John and very strangely that's exactly what she wanted for Deborah and so um, she found Deborah just an incredibly unusual creature and that Deborah wanted to go to university she didn't want to stay in Motherwell uh, where she grew up um, and they had this sort of, yeah, very interesting dynamic. Um, I sort of don't want to say too much about the book because it's... You don't want to... Sp- um, but yeah, it's fascinating. It's about narcissism. It's about uh, 
you know what happens when a sort of the core relationship in your life is is like that and how that ricochets through the rest of your life it's it for me that's sort of it's like i don't know if you've read why be happy when you could be normal oh yes of course it's, you know constance jeanette winterson's mum in that book is sort of ever present yeah moving character and when it's kind of like that in, in mother world it's extraordinary and really exciting so that seems to be something that you've done quite a lot through your career mm-hmm. of spotting a glint in a proposal and turning that into what the book actually ends up being yeah i mean it's it's again why i really love non-fiction it's because I, I find it incredibly creative and mm. i mean it, i don't always do that like a lot, i publish lots of books that where that's not needed in any way to perform and actually it's a it's a, it's a dangerous thing to do. i don't get away with it very often but when when you have a good relationship with an author right at the beginning and there's a sort of sense of trust there it can be incredibly collaborative in a way that I don't think you, you get in other kinds of projects. Yeah, because I guess, I mean, partly because of the practicalities of it, of getting a finished yeah. book, maybe it just seems too daunting a task yeah, to, to, yeah. to re- reinvent the wheel. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, like, every time you've done that, you've always mentioned that it's always come almost as a result of meeting the person behind yeah. it. Yeah. Maybe that harks back to your therapy background. And oh, I was thinking... <laughs> Yeah, maybe. But I think well, more, probably yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe more truthfully, like also harks back to having done other things before yeah. finding your way into publishing. Like, I don't know if someone who did nothing but read books their whole life would write a good book, or yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I don't know. Maybe the, those outside experiences actually are. Yeah, I also just I really like stuff that hasn't <laughs> exist yet. You know, mm. I, I, I I'm I, I'm sort of. I think agents really hate me because I don't buy very many books from agents. Um, I sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're out there sending out amazing stuff, and but I'm just much more interested in coming up with something brand new. Mm. And, and often that's working with an author to sort of, okay, how can we make this really original and something very different? And I like books that sort of turn the genre on its head and say, fuck you, to a particular kind of writing. And yeah, often that involves getting involved with the author very early on and doing it together. Mm. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask you one more question yeah. just before we finish, which is these are lots of books you have worked on. Yeah. Have you read anything you've really loved? Have you got anything that, you, yeah. that you've... Um... Do you mean it's been published recently? Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to say Three Women by Lisa Today, who, uh, which has just come out and has been a number one bestseller in hardback nonfiction, which is kind of extraordinary for a book about uh, women and sexuality and abuse, essentially. Um, it's just been a masterclass in publishing. My great friend, Alexis Kirsch Brown, who's a brilliant editor at Bloomsbury, published that book and just did it beautifully. Mm-hmm. And, I remember that she was over for dinner. We were all really close and annoying. She was over for dinner and she showed me the cover of that book. And I was like, no way, you can't do that. It, it's the cover of sort of this incredible image of like fruit. Yeah. And it's really unexpected. And she was a genius, obviously. I was totally wrong, but I was like, no, you can't do that. You absolutely can't do that. Yeah, but again, it's that yeah. thing of the, you know, the market, what your expectations for a book are yeah. like that should be. And then yeah. actually sometimes it's doing something completely different to that that it makes it that she was the right publisher for that but yeah. I wasn't and you know lots of other people weren't and, and I think that is the thing that editors I think I always have to remind myself is that if I say no if I turn down a book that ends up being successful 
it's, I wasn't the right person to do it. I couldn't have done what they did. And I, and I um, yeah, that's, I think only Alexis could have published that book the way that she published it. And it's, it, that just it. Thank you for listening, and a special thank you this week to Rebecca Markwick, who was our soundmaster. If you'd like to hear me talk even more about books, I'll be with Rebecca on UCL's Shelf Healing podcast next week, talking about bibliotherapy and the healing power of books. They've also got fab episodes with the likes of Joanna Harris, James Daunt, the CEO of Waterstones, and Curtis Brown's Johnny Geller. And for those of you in London, I'm really excited to say that I'll be doing What Editors Want first ever live event this November, Thursday the 25th, uh, to help celebrate the Literary Consultancy's 25th anniversary. If you're interested in that, I'll be announcing further details on Twitter or you can follow the Literary Consultancy. Thank you and see you soon. Thank you.